Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. Uh, it turns out Pete's actually now being interrogated. Yeah, fingers crossed that we'll get him back by next week. Today, we are talking about Minute 87, which begins with blood on the floor and ends with a cut of steak. Back on the show, it's Lorraine Dom. Hello, Lorraine. Hello, everyone. Ah, the interrogation room. Um, there's there's a funny little trope here that I, I kind of love when it's employed well. It's this moment where Zola, right at the very beginning of this minute, he notices some blood, like dried blood on the floor. And there's this trope where a character notices something in a film and just as they start trying to move in for a closer look or trying to figure out what it is or whatever the case may be, they're interrupted usually by a loud sound followed by someone entering the room or something like that. Uh, I, I kind of always love the way that that plays in films. You know, you as an audience, you want to look too, and then we're all interrupted. And, and I think it works well here because it, it highlights the fact that there's blood on the floor and Zola might start being a little concerned. And he's like leaning in for a closer look like, oh, crap is that like is something they're going to do to me and then all of a sudden the door opens up i love it yes <laughs> and it's such a unnecessarily noisy clangy door right, exactly. too like i mean it it sounds when it slams shut it sounds like it's like 500 pounds of pure steel or something uh, right yeah no that's that is very true this for a uh, i mean it's you know it's it's headquarters for a military operation presumably they do have some space in here for you know having prisoners of war that they can interrogate and stuff like that but still it it sounds like a much heavier door than it likely is like it literally sounds like a door in a prison like a giant metal door hitting a giant metal frame yes <laughs> i know it's just it's doubly funny. I'm um, just because anything that's louder than it's supposed to be is funny. And then just because Zola is such a, a little wormy guy that, you know, the fact that they would have this big, huge, thick security door for him. Right. I know. It's very funny. But yeah, so here Tommy Lee Jones enters as Colonel Phillips. And now we've got a room full of Joneses as we've got Tommy and Toby Jones, no relation, sitting to talk across from each other. Uh, this is a fun little scene. I like the way that this plays. Colonel Phillips walks in with a, with a, you know, I don't know, it looks like one of those cafeteria trays. And yeah. it, you know, he's got on it a plate with uh, steak, potatoes, and broccoli. There's some salt and pepper. There's some milk and, and a fork and knife. And I, I love the way that all of this looks, you know, he asks, uh, or I guess he kind of tells Zola to sit down and then joins him. And uh, they have this, this little exchange, this little interrogation. Um, and, you know, I, I can't help but notice also in this dark room that there is a, a very intense single light that conveniently is right over the seat where zola and presumably anyone else they're interrogating sits so it ends up becoming the perfect design for an interrogation scene uh what do you uh, what do you think of yes. this scene do you like the way it plays yes that's the th first thing that had struck me ever in this scene was how it was lit like an interrogation like you are guided into that train of thought i mean even if you hadn't seen it coming i guess would be the 
way. Um, it's very stark. It's very uh, set up kind of like law and order, like all the TV shows that do the interrogations. And just, again, like the stark lighting compared to the bright colors and sort of flashiness we've been seeing. Um, and then coupled with like the 40s uh, size serving sizes, like the little teeny glass of milk and, you know, <laughs> the tiny amount of potatoes. Um, and the fact that Jones is Tommy Lee Jones just starts like, if you don't want it, I'm eating it. I'm not letting this good food go. Like that kind of showed more about the, how the war was going than anything else. Yeah. I mean, he, he very specifically calls that out about how difficult it is to get a, a hold of a prime cut like that, which I think is, is funny yeah. that he brings that up. I also think that is the, it's kind of funny though, that like he, he's like, all right, well, I'm, if you're not going to eat it, I'm going to eat it. And he starts eating it. And but there's yeah he's like <laughs> yeah just cutting into oh, it he's literally chewing the scenery <laughs> yeah right right what's funny though is like if they were gonna poison him because the the way that it plays is like Zola is very suspicious like he's mm-hmm. uh, you know he he feels they're likely using this as a way to drug him in some capacity I mean he's likely done that before and so here he is being very suspicious about you know what's in it and all of that with Colonel Phillips brilliant retort cow you know it makes me laugh every time <laughs> yeah. coming out of Tommy Lee Jones's mouth but it's funny because like they I mean he could be eating the steak but the milk could be poisoned the salt or the pepper could be poisoned any of the vegetables could be poisoned like it's not necessarily the steak and so I think that it's funny that it plays this way because you know, like he might eat the steak and then Zola might go you know I think I'll have the broccoli actually and you know then be knocked out you know so it's right it's it's funny the <laughs> the potential that they could have had to actually do something here I like the way that plays out yeah oh and it's sort of like Zola kind of having to choose like do i want a meal or do i want to risk being poisoned and kind of when you see tommy jones eating it you're sort of like well did he just miss out on a perfectly safe meal then just to be stubborn or suspicious or yeah he's already outsmarted or is he really a vegetarian i was i was wondering like maybe he is a vegetarian he says meat disagrees with him but again he doesn't go for the broccoli or the potatoes well i think wasn't hitler a vegetarian so i didn't i thought maybe they were playing on that where like i'm not sure uh was he yeah uh, maybe uh, i'm googling <laughs> it right now uh, no his prime diet did include meat he was fond of bavarian okay. sausages <laughs> so there you go okay uh, but what was interesting <laughs> is that did send me down this uh, this kind of look into the history of vegetarianism like you know how i mean Vegetarianism has been a thing all the way back since 9th century BCE, um, and you know there has been a lot of kind of um, stories about different types of vegetarianism through the ages in different parts of the world. You know, India, um, the Hellenese, the Egyptians. Um, you know, there were some uh, vegetarian vegetarianism practice there, and in Greece uh, and in Japan, and um, it, it disappeared for a long time in Europe, and then it looks like it started coming back again uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. There actually was, in 1847, an organization in the UK formed that was called the Vegetarian Society, which I think was interesting. And uh, yeah, it, it really kind of became more and more popular largely in the 20th century. So I think 
yeah, I don't think it's beyond a possibility that maybe Zola is, a, in fact, a vegetarian. You know, it's I mean, it's interesting that it's not ever really called out and the scene plays it like, yeah, no, he's just suspicious. But, you know, there is a possibility that maybe he actually is a vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, um... I think in Europe, meat was considered such a luxury item that um, people were struggling to get more of it into their diet, um, whereas in um, other countries with preservation techniques or the climate, uh, you couldn't uh, preserve meat as well. And so it was a less savory item sometimes. And so, but I don't know how that would uh, play into Zola's decision other than maybe you know, he tortured enough people and that sort of turned him off of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always a pleasant thought. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> How do you um, buy into Zola as as portrayed in the film? Like, he starts off kind of being this mad scientist a little bit, very excited about what he's going to be able to do with the Tesseract energy. But over the course of the film, like, it's we've seen him reacting in ways to Schmidt's decisions and Schmidt's, ac Schmidt's actions that it does seem like he's starting to get a little bit nervous about things. But do you, I don't know, do you think that they were playing it like this is a person who doesn't want to die and he actually wants to join the allies? Or do you think that they've played it like he's just a suspicious character or he's nervous that, that you know, Schmidt doesn't like him anymore? <laughs> you know, like, how do you feel that it's played like as, uh, as the, they've portrayed him in the film? In the film, I took him as Zola looks out for Zola. I think he has his own uh, goals that might not necessarily be explained in the film. Um, you know, like, I think he saw the awesome power of the Tesseract and was, like, thinking beyond maybe what Schmidt or anybody else would with that. Um, and I, I don't think he necessarily cares for power, but I think he cares for um, having the power to do what he wants as far as his experiments and things like that. And um, I don't think he necessarily is planning on switching to the allies. I think he's going to do what keeps him alive for the next couple weeks until he has another choice to make. Yeah, you know, I suppose that's an interesting, uh, an interesting way to kind of look at it because I, I, part of me kind of struggles with some of that. That I'm like, uh, I can see that, uh, but at the same time, I'm like, uh, the way that his character seems when we next see him in the Winter Soldier, like suddenly he seems like full on hail Hydra. I'm a maniacal genius again. And, and here, like, he, I don't know, it's just, it's so interesting because he seems so um, reticent uh, a number of times to like, you know, he doesn't want to do the salute to Schmidt, the Hail Hydra thing. And like, I, I find him to be an interesting character. And I, I, I don't know if I ever fully can jump on board with the full, I, I guess I don't mind the portrayal so much here, but I just feel like once we get to the next film, I start like, wait a minute. I thought he was not super happy over there with Hydra, but maybe it was just Schmidt. I think he doesn't really care about like how when he says, you know, like Schmidt wants to take over the world or the world isn't enough. Um, like, I, I think he doesn't want the administrative duties of that. Like, I don't think he really cares. He just wants kind of unfettered access to do whatever 
weird little experiments um, he wants to. And he probably knows that most of his experiments are probably not regarded by most people as ethical or uh, what have you. And so, I mean, he needs a sort of powers that be that won't care about what he's doing, but he, uh, I don't think he really cares about what those powers are. Well, and I suppose to a certain extent, there's a, there's a, a sense that we got like the last time we saw him and Schmidt together was in the, the factory ruins in Greece when Schmidt is yelling at him for, um, you know, the fact that the allies keep destroying his, uh, his factories. And he tells Zola to his face, you are failing. And Zola is just like, that's not my job. I just designed the weapons. And so I, I wonder if part of it is just that, yeah, Schmidt is a bad leader. He is putting stuff on Schmidt's on Zola's shoulders that Zola, they don't fall in his wheelhouse, but he's kind of making him do it. And I I wonder if that's the thing more that he loves to do all of this crazy stuff, but Schmidt's using him as the wrong type of tool. He's, definitely a round peg getting shoved into the square hole um, and knows it and realizes that that's not the way to victory. And I mean, he could also be uh, self-preserving enough to know which way the tides of history are starting to flow. Um, You know, if the allies, despite Schmidt being the red skull are still winning at this point. Um, So I, I think he, Again, I I think he doesn't care who wins as long as he's not in prison or dead or Well, okay, so so this is an interesting question. I know, uh, you know, this this interrogation we're just very early on in it, just kind of up to the point where Phillips takes the steak and starts eating it and we're really the the bulk of the interrogation is really um in tomorrow's minute. But at this point, you know, we we find out about the cyanide. This is where Phillips says every hydra agent has taken has you know, basically uh, chewed up their cyanide and and uh, we can't stop them, but not you. And this is kind of where we are with things. The interesting thing is, and, and this certainly might be something we want to talk about a little bit more in tomorrow's minute, but we have this sense of Zola that, uh, or, or, you know, we're getting this sense. I mean, he's in this interrogation room. Phillips is talking to him and he hasn't bit down on this pill. But he also knows what Schmidt is capable of. Like he, you know, has seen the weapons. He's designed and built these weapons and knows like, uh, you know, the Valkyrie is out there. Schmidt has this intention to basically take over the world. And it does make me wonder, like, you know, he's here with the allies. The allies are going to uh, hopefully help him so that he can kind of help them and they can all kind of work together. But still, if he thinks that Schmidt actually could win and take over the world and destroy everybody else like he's it seems like suddenly he's in a position where um you know he probably is better off just figuring out a different plan yeah i mean we know from later movies that he remains loyal to hydra so is it just he's no longer loyal to schmidt or um is it that hydra's uh kind of main bullet point ideas for the world change in the uh, 50 years between the movies. Yeah. It's, it's like you said, he became like super hail Hydra in the winter soldier and he wasn't really all that in this movie. So you kind of got to wonder what he's either hiding here or what changed in 50 years. 
Yeah, I think there are going to be some interesting things happening within uh, Hydra after Schmidt is gone from it. It seems like because of him, because he was brought here, and really, you know, through this interrogation and really what ends up resulting because of it, and this whole Operation Paperclip, and, you know, this whole alliance, it seems like, I, I don't know, I guess I wonder, is he the one who really rebuilds Hydra inside S.H.I.E.L.D. and and makes it what he wanted it to be all along, because now Schmidt's not here. Because it's it's very unclear, like, if there is more um, leadership at Hydra other than Schmidt. Like, we don't really get a sense of, like, any position other than it's it certainly seems like Schmidt is the head, mm-hmm. right? It, it seems like he's the main, the main man here. But I, it does make me wonder if when Zola joins up here, once he finds out that Schmidt disappears... If he says, this is my chance, this is my chance to kind of turn it into what I always wanted it to be. Right. Uh, I mean, along with Schmidt disappearing, if we kind of merge our timeline with this movie, I mean, the Nazis disappear, too. And I uh, I want to tread very carefully on this uh, point, but maybe he disagreed with a lot of Nazi ideology, but not necessarily their end goal or tactics. And so um, once the Nazis and Schmidt were done, he could develop things. I mean, Hydra's whole thing was getting rid of bad people before they even commit the crime. And I mean, other than their nebulous version of bad or troublesome, um, it wasn't the same uh, like racial markings that the Nazis had used. And so maybe that's where Schmidt's or excuse me, Zola's hang up was, was not like, it's not just one group, like bad people are in every group and that's how we need to weed them out versus, versus genocide. So <laughs> like I said, this is an icky subject, but well, yeah, it's, and it's tricky because this is of all the stories, the one that is most tied into real world history and, yes. you know, obviously a, a difficult time that, you know, where, um, far too many people, you know, were killed for terrible reasons. So, yeah. Yes. And that's, that's kind of what I think maybe, you know, maybe that's what Zola saw was the problem was uh, the the focused hate versus hate for worldwide, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly interesting. He's an interesting character. Uh, and this is, yeah, this I feel like there's, you know, from here through the end of, you know, Schmidt's time on the planet, I feel like, you know, it's it's probably a very uncomfortable time for Zola because he's just unsure what his what's going to happen to him. Because I, I my expectations would be that he would know if Schmidt takes over or it, the, like if he wins and takes over the world, he's toast. Like there's no way Zola is going to be left to live. Right. Only Schmidt would have the weapons and the way to keep that is to get rid of the person who built them. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, all right. Well, we're going to continue the 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 bulk of the interrogation tomorrow. So, any last things here that you you wanted to talk about about the way that this scene plays out? One thing Marvel is very good at, I think, is um, 
giving agency to characters other than you know the main characters your hero and your big bad guy i mean here an important turning point in the whole situation and it's between zola and uh colonel chester you know or phillips excuse me um you know i mean a very strong pivot point between two fairly minor characters that's an interesting point and it it is nice to see that they are giving them you know something more to do i'm sure you know as the writer as the director when you're putting a project together you're wanting to make sure these supporting characters do have the their their interesting moments so the actor can really latch on to something and you can get mm-hmm. more of a name uh i think that's probably part of it but uh, but it is nice and i do like the way that this plays you got kind of the low camera below both of them a lot of over the shoulder shots and it it just it's it's very effective and i don't know it there's something very funny when you have tommy lee jones and he's saying things like cow or he's saying things like or does it give you the rumbly tummy tummy too like it just i don't know it just it just it makes me laugh yeah it's i don't know it's very stark and real because they're they're insults but they seem like the kind of insults he would fling at you know a allied uh colonel of the time would fling at a um axis prisoner of war you're right right exactly (laughs) All right. Well, let's wrap this up. We'll come back and talk more about the interrogation, uh, the bulk of it tomorrow. So uh, thank you so much for joining me again, Lorraine. Thank you for having me. I certainly appreciate it. Remember, everybody, you can learn more about what we're up to at marvelmovieminute.com. You can find our socials and learn more about membership, all that good stuff. We'll be back tomorrow. So until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.